Hey, Tom, how you doing? What's up, Dan? Thanks for uh, having me on the show. Happy to have you, man. We uh, So this thing is, is recording us now, and I try to avoid editing. So before we hop in, uh, just to make sure you don't say anything that you don't want, uh, however few people are listening to us right now, but um, so we'll just we'll just kind of rip it here. Yeah, that sounds great. I'm always prepared. Do you want to take a minute to introduce yourself and however you want to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, my name is Dan Ritterman. I'm a commercial real estate broker from Philadelphia. I work at Tactics Real Estate Advisors. Uh, we spend our time exclusively representing companies in negotiating lease transactions, buying buildings, doing build-to-suit transactions. Got it. Um, the last time we spoke, I was really interested in your path to where you are today. And like this, when I sent this email to you about like a little bit of prep, this felt goofy writing, but even just like, like, tell us how you got here. Yeah, it's been uh, a bit of a windy road. So um, I'm a Philadelphia born and raised. I've lived in this area my whole life. I went to undergrad, uh, college at Penn State up at um, main campus and I'm studying political science. My plan was to go to law school, um, maybe put off law school for a year or two, but end up you know, going to law school, going and being a lawyer and working in Center City. Um, while I was at Penn State, there was a service there. It was called Line Menus. And it was a website where you could go online, you could order food and you could have it delivered to your house. Uh, it sounds really familiar these days, but it was kind of a novel concept back then, uh, just to put sort of a frame of reference on it. This was 2007, 2008. iPhone came out in June of 2007, I believe. So this is right when sort of smartphones are becoming a thing. Everyone was kind of walking around with Blackberries at the time, but we were all ordering food online. Um, a good friend of mine from high school went to Wash U in St. Louis. They had a very similar service down there. No website. You called them. They placed the delivery, but then they actually did the delivery themselves. So we sort of saw an opportunity to combine these two uh, sort of processes into one, make a website, you could place an order and also provide the delivery. And we decided to do it in the main line, which is a suburb just outside of Philadelphia, because uh, we realized there were a lot of high quality restaurants, a pretty dense population. And we thought it was really a business model that could work. So we opened a business uh, right out of college and we operated it for eight years. So we were sort of doing food delivery before food delivery was uh, really a popular business model. Tell us, um, there's so much there that like you were able to wrap up into a nice tight little package, but the, take us through some of the early days of, of what was hard about doing that and like where you were spending your time. Sure. So before we started the company, everybody asked us how we were going to market ourselves. How would we get the word out? How would we tell people about it? Um, and our, our thought was always, it's a great idea. Everyone will find out about it. What do you mean? And that turns out that was extremely naive. So we built a website. It took about five or six months, made a lot of mistakes along the way. Finally got it launched in December of 2008. This was went live. Website immediately crashed, pulled it right back down. Uh, spent about three to four weeks of retooling. And in January of 2009, officially had our you know, final launch. Um, for the first year, my business partner and I lived in an apartment together right in our delivery zone and took as many of the deliveries by ourselves as we possibly could. 
Um, we would literally rock, paper, scissor, and whoever lost had to leave the apartment to go take that delivery. So we operated that way for a long time until we couldn't anymore. Sometimes we would bribe friends to go take a delivery for us if we had to, if we were really busy. Um, and eventually we were busy enough that we could hire our own first driver. Um, and that really kind of put things into perspective because once we were able to remove ourselves from the physically going out and leaving the office, that kind of gave us a little bit more time to take a step back and holistically look at the entire business. We were still doing all the dispatching, sitting in a chair and taking deliveries when we had to, but that's when we could really focus on sales and marketing, which turned out to be way more important than we ever thought. Um, between my partner and I, I was a political science major. He's a chemical engineer. So we had zero business sense whatsoever. <laughs> um, but we had, you know, we had a certain amount of common sense. So we kind of had an idea of what we had to do. We just didn't know the right way to do things. So it took us a little bit longer than it probably should have. Um, but once people sort of caught on and we hit a critical mass of restaurants who bought into the idea, that, that sort of helped us snowball. Uh, the funny thing about it was we would go into these restaurants to sell them and we would say, look, we're going to do all this marketing. We'll help bring all these new customers to your restaurant to order delivery. And the truth was, is that we didn't have the money to actually do any of that marketing. So the restaurants were actually doing more marketing for us at the beginning than we were able to do for them. And then eventually, once we were busy enough, the, the flip the switch really flipped and we were able to drive them a lot more business than they were ever bringing to us. That's awesome, man. I love the uh, visual of rocks, paper, scissors in the apartment of, of who's going to take this order. I think that's awesome. Did you guys, how did you, um, how did you build the site or, or handle tech? Did you have to bring somebody in that knew how to do that? Can you write code? Like, how was that handled? So we started a company with under $20,000 in capital and 99% of it went to building a website. Um, if I could do that whole process over again, there are many, many things that I would do differently. And I have built several websites since then, including a second iteration of mainline delivery. Um, we didn't make those mistakes, but we went with really a bare bones, cheap option, which was good enough to get us up and running. Um, so in the end, it did work out, but... Uh, it, it, it wasn't the right way. We didn't build it the right way the first time, I guess is the easiest way to put it. So there were a lot of lessons learned there, a lot of handholding. It took twice as long and cost twice as much as we initially thought it would, which I've realized is kind of the norm for these things. So that's, that's been a good experience. Um, the other funny thing to kind of put a frame of reference around this whole thing is the only other startup costs to starting our company other than building the website was we had to actually go to Best Buy and buy like five of those GPSs that you would stick on your windshield in your car. Because phones didn't, at the time, phones didn't really have a reliable enough GPS. So we had to sort of provide those for people who were driving for us. So that, that was kind of like a funny kind of like snapshot in time of what, what was going on in the world then. Yeah. Was anybody else doing it? So there was a company called Dining In that was in Center City, Philadelphia, that operated in several markets. So they were, I think they were in Boston. I believe they were based in Boston, actually. I think they were in Baltimore, Chicago, and Philadelphia. They were ultimately bought by Grubhub. So if you think back to what Grubhub used to be, Grubhub used to only be a portal. So it go between between your business and the restaurant and the restaurant would do the delivery themselves. When Grubhub acquired Dining In, who was sort of our competitor right next door, that was their foray into taking on the delivery operation themselves. Um, so there were other companies doing it around the country. Nothing like you'll see today, like nothing that approaches the scale of DoorDash or Uber Eats or anything like that but there were some of these sort of more local players. What was um, the reason I asked that question was thinking about back to like sales and marketing, thinking about 
the way that you guys must have had to pitch, was there a really heavy educational component? Like, was there, did you have to sell the restaurant on the concept and on letting you guys take a crack at it? That's a great question. Uh, And the answer is very much yes. So when we were initially doing our sales processes, no one knew, a lot of these restaurant owners didn't use the internet, period. But they especially didn't understand that there was a way that customers could interact with the internet and then have a real life service immediately follow. So there was a lot of explaining of this is the website. This is how an order looks. This is what it looks like when it comes through to you. We were faxing orders to restaurants at the time. So it was pretty old school. Um, So that was actually helpful for them because they were still getting these paper tickets like they were used to getting. They would just spit out of a machine in their restaurant. So that kind of helped bridge the gap a little bit. But there was a lot of consumer education. And then sort of once the industry caught up with what we were doing, it became a lot easier because we could just sort of point to these other companies and say, you've heard of them. Well, it's like that, but we're doing it in this one specific area. And I do a little bit of, I wouldn't call it coaching, but sort of mentorship of other entrepreneurs who are starting these novel businesses. And one of the things that I say to them is there's just nothing that you can say to somebody in one conversation that will sell your entire vision if they don't already have a background of what you do. So it just takes a little bit more patience and you may have to take an extra 12 months or so we were not, we were profitable per unit. Like it's, it's impossible to take a delivery and lose money because we were just paying the people less than we were making, but we weren't doing volume enough to actually be driving any kind of significant revenue. So it took a little while to really get the ball rolling. And then once the customer who was the restaurant sort of started to understand it and the customer who was the, really the person receiving the food started to understand that this was something that could really work consistently we really took off, but that took 18 to 24 months to really sort of get the ball rolling on the education side of things. I guess two things. There's um, the word that there's two things that popped into my mind as you're going through this. And that last piece that you hit is, is patience, right? It's like things take way longer than you think almost in any aspect like if you're remodeling your house and you go out and you get budget and completion deadlines it's like just add add 50 percent to both or more without even seeing anything it's sort of like the same thing with having people hire you to do some kind of job like when you're starting a business it's well the idea is great it's like it, it really doesn't matter you're a year out for from somebody giving you a check to do anything absolutely and as, as an um, entrepreneur and, especially like do, you get so fired up about your idea like we knew we had something that people wanted we knew this was a good idea like why doesn't everyone else see this right why don't they get it and the truth is is not everyone else is sitting around thinking about food delivery all day right so you're kind of getting yourself psyched up because you know you have something special but you don't want to be too forceful about pushing it on people because you know that they'll see the light eventually, but you don't want to drive them away by being too pushy. So you do have to strike a balance of keeping your own excitement as an entrepreneur about your product in check while also being a little bit forceful and trying to drag people along. So you do have to strike a balance there. I agree completely. What things did you pull out of that experience that you bring with you today to your work? Uh, so these days I work as a commercial real estate broker and I'm definitely happy to talk about the, trans- you know, the transition there, but uh, that patience of understanding that things are going to work out. It's just a question of timing and making sure things happen at the right time in these processes really helps me in our real estate transactions. They can take two to three years on the long end. And you really have to be able to keep the goal in mind while also realizing that you're really building a ladder and you have to, 
hit each rung in the process to make sure we do this right, to make sure that when you get to the top, you've actually done all the things to lay the foundation to get where you want to go. And I think that my experience over operating the company for eight years really showed me that you can, you need to keep the end goal in mind, but then take these incremental steps to make sure that you're moving in that path constantly. And that translates to commercial real estate, like unbelievably. What about just toughness? Like how much toughness did you develop over those eight years? It's so, it's a funny thing. You get reject any salesperson deals with rejection every single day. I mean, if, if every person you reached out to said yes, you wouldn't have to make sales calls for very long. Right. So every person who does sales is constantly dealing with rejection. I think you, it's a skill that you build up. It's not personal. You just realize that maybe the person you talked to was having a bad day that day or the customer, you know what, if you're going to do a thousand food deliveries in a day, 10 of them are going to go wrong, no matter what you do. Right. And that's just okay. How you deal with that once things do go wrong is really the important part. Um, I learned a lot about customer service and handling people in my years there, because as an owner of the company, we had customer service reps on the phone, but if things were taking a turn South, I could just take the phone and say, Hey, I'm the owner. I'm here. What's going on. How can I fix this for you right now? And a lot of people, you realize that if you take ownership and fix the mistake, the problem isn't necessarily that the mistake happened. It's that people just want things to be fixed. So I, I learned a lot about not necessarily confrontation, but really de-escalation. And then realizing that not everything is going to work out perfectly every single time. It's what you do with that that is okay. And then on the other, the sales side, most people are just going to say no because the timing just isn't right. And I think that's a lesson that any salesperson or any entrepreneur can take because unless you're one of these companies that has one of these like astronomical rises, it's not going to be a straight line up. That's really, really important, I think, as well, is people, whatever, whatever you do for a profession, there aren't people that are sitting there with their credit card in their hand waiting for you right. to call them. It's probably going to take 10 conversations and a year before they find themselves in that crossroads where what you do can be valuable. I think that's, it's so right funny. Right, it's like, right on the head. Absolutely. No. No one is waiting for you to call. So there are a whole bunch of things that need to happen between today and being in a seat to actually help them with what you can do. So I, I just think that's really valuable. But the, I'm not sure how this is going to land or where, where this is going to go. But um, do you think that everybody should do something like you guys did right out of college? I don't know that everybody should do something that I did right out of college. I took a path where I knew I was likely going to end up in law school, which I did. But when you go to law school, you can do anything that you want. And you realize that once you get there, I mean, there are people who worked in finance for 10 years, decided to go to law school, people who went to medical school and then decided to go to law school, people who are engineers who go to law school. And then I had this sort of normal path of, you know, of being a political science major, but I kind of realized that I could do whatever I want. Uh, for those couple of years before I went to law school and it wouldn't set me back. I don't think that's the case for every profession. I think if you want to be a doctor, you need to get into med school, right? You might take a year or two off, but you need to keep moving towards that path. But I do think that you get experience trying to run a business that you won't get anywhere else because at the end of the day, you're going to run your head into the wall over and over and over and over again. And you're the owner of the business. So there isn't somebody to turn around and ask. I mean, you may have a mentor, you may have a coach, but they are not people who have done the exact thing that you did. So I think that that experience is invaluable because you really have to 
figure out how to navigate this thing on your own. And that left me in a position where I really felt like even when things seem like they're really going south, and even if everything right in front of me looks bad, let's figure out a way to get to the other side because I still see a vision for moving forward. Um, and that's just, I don't think that's a skill you can necessarily pick up if you just join a company or at a college and become sort of a cog in the wheel. I think you kind of have to go out on your own to get that lesson. I don't think it's required, but I do think it was an extremely valuable education that I probably couldn't have gotten any other way. Yeah, it's just like, it just struck me as like, I've got really young kids and there's just so much there for like intangible learning that you are going to basically uh, go to legal zoom, open an LLC, have an idea and try to translate that idea into somebody giving you their credit card or writing you a check. Like there's just, I think like just getting kicked in the teeth a bunch of times is potentially really valuable. I, the, the way that I asked that question, like should everyone do that in hindsight sounds so stupid, but just thinking about how, how much there is to gain by trying to build something from nothing, having people tell, you no, it's just like immediately my mind went to my kids. It's like that, that is like, like when I was in high school, my folks had me work landscaping construction jobs. And it's like, there's a certain amount of toughness that you get from doing that, but also like, here's what, you know, a huge chunk of the population does for work every day. And if you don't want to do this, you need to, there are other things that you need to do to make sure that you don't end up here. And it's sort of like forcing somebody to start a business, even if the experience sucks at the time, it's just like, there's just so much there. So sorry, that was a no, bit no, rambling. I but I have, um, I have a three and a half year old son and he's doing, he's doing puzzles. I think he's up to like 48 piece puzzles. And it, it's, if I dump a puzzle on the floor for him and leave him alone for a half hour, I will come back and that puzzle will be finished. But if I sit there next to him, he will ask me for help, even though he can do it on his own and I'll help him through it. But when he does it by himself without any help from me, you can see the difference in the look in his eyes about like how proud of himself he is with that. But also it forces him on his own to work through some of these situations where he otherwise may have looked over and taken the easy way out. And, and I do, I try to put him in these situations, like you were saying with your kids, to let them work through some of these problems on their own. Because I think there is something to be said for making a whole bunch of wrong decisions and figuring out why one was right. I love that. I, I got to uh, steal some of that. It's really hard to not always want to just help and to fix everything, but you can see how that, that becomes a habit that gets really hard to break. And then you have, now you have 15 year old kids who you're still doing their laundry and, you know, like at some point, and I think the sooner the better, if you can figure out how to let them, make these little mistakes that will eventually put them in a better spot. I love that. I love the puzzle thing. So I'm going to steal that. Um, let's try to make a somewhat hard transition into what you do every day. And I, I sent a couple questions to you that I think could spark some conversations, but something that fascinates me. Um, and if you think it's helpful to come up with some sort of like, uh, you know, fantasy case study so we can put hard numbers around it because the first question I have is how should a company think about hiring a broker and there's some assumptions there that companies know that they should maybe talk to three or four folks before hiring somebody to go help them find 
office space. But if you think we need to have like, it's uh, an early stage startup and they're looking for space for 30 people. If we need any of that stuff, put it in there. But I guess starting generally, how do you think companies should hire a broker? Well, I think the first question is, should you hire a broker at all? Right. And then if the answer to that question is yes, then you kind of start to talk about what do we want to look for? Um, and the reason I say that is there are, especially we work with a lot of law firms, lawyers do a lot of real estate transactions. They understand what they're doing. Um, they understand how to review a lease. They understand how to read a lease. Now, the problem is, is that most companies, their number one line item, right, is their people. It's payroll, it's benefits, it's things like that, right? 401k contributions, all those things. Number two, if you're not a large manufacturing company, it's probably your office space is your number two expense, right? And most companies will have a full-time HR department because they need one. There are constantly issues with people coming up benefits, the questions have to be answered, hiring, firing, a lot, of, a lot of payroll things happen, a lot of HR things happen. Almost no company has a full-time real estate person on staff, and they shouldn't, right? Because they don't have an ongoing real estate need. So what ends up happening is your company signs most leases in Philadelphia are three, five, seven, or 10 years. They can be anything, but those are standard. And every three, five, seven, or 10 years, when your lease comes up, somebody in your staff meeting gets pointed at, and they say, you you're going to be in charge of our next real estate lease. And that person says, me? Why me? I don't know what I'm doing, right? But because they don't have anybody on staff who really knows how to run these processes. So now all of a sudden, this person who really doesn't know what they're doing and really shouldn't know what they're doing is in charge of this process that carries a lot of weight and importance for the future of the company and the comfort of the workspace that their colleagues are going to work in for the next, for the foreseeable future. So our argument is you don't have somebody on staff who's qualified to run these transactions you should not have somebody on staff who's qualified to run these transactions. And therefore it's the perfect opportunity for an outside consultant or an outside real estate broker to come in and help you run this process. So that is sort of in a nutshell, like why I think you should choose, why you should work with a broker period instead of trying to go out on your own. Now, if you've decided that, yes, a broker is the right thing for me, the question becomes, which broker should I use? Um, Almost everybody has a brother-in-law or a sister-in-law or a friend from high school who now does commercial real estate um, because the bar to entry is relatively low. So there are a lot of commercial real estate brokers out there and they do a lot of different things and have a lot of different specialties. Um, the company that I joined, which is Tactics Real Estate Advisors in Philadelphia, our niche is that we are tenant brokers. It is all that we do. So if you think about two sides to a transaction, there's a landlord and there's a tenant right? The landlord has a broker. That broker makes a lot of money off that landlord because they're a source of repeat business. So they get a whole building, they lease out the entire building for that landlord. And that's great. They'll try to bring tenants in, they'll put them in the building if they can and move them elsewhere. But their number one client is the landlord. Now, Tactics Real Estate Advisors specifically works with tenants. And it's important because I'll get to why I chose this brokerage for my work. But all that we do is represent tenants in transactions. We don't do any landlords at all. So we are sort of pure of purpose in that we want to be consultants for these companies who are going out into the market. And we want to try to strike the best deal we can for them while having no loyalties to the person on the other side of the negotiating table. Now, obviously, we want to act in good faith. We want to be you know, good partners in negotiation. We want to make sure we you know, follow all norms and everything. But our only client in every transaction that we participate in is the tenant. Now, that speaks really well to law firms. They understand the whole conflict of interest. And we always say to them, 
look, you can't represent your client and the person they're suing. It's unethical and it's illegal. For some reason, the commercial real estate brokerage, it seems to be perfectly acceptable to have your broker also represent the person that you're trying to negotiate with. We just don't think that's the best way to get the best result. Now, when I was looking to make this transition to commercial real estate, um, while I was running mainline delivery, this is kind of a tangent, I did end up going to law school. So um, I went to Temple Law. I spent four years up there. I was part-time while I was also running the company. Um, so I have this sort of like ingrained conflict of interest sort of in my brain where we can't provide really good representation to two sides of a transaction. So we've decided that we're if you're a company, we've now decided that we're going to hire a broker. Now we have to decide who do we want to hire? And our argument is that it's a no brainer that you should be hiring an exclusive representative representative for tenants because we are completely outcome neutral. We're not going to steer you towards one of our own buildings. We are mostly attorneys. So we have a very solid background in the negotiating of the contracts. And we've also done some very large projects in Philadelphia, anything from a couple people in you know, a co-working space all the way up to uh, representing um, the, the, the major tenant in the FMC tower in Philadelphia, which is one of the largest uh, recently built skyscrapers in Philadelphia. So we think that there are, there's the qualification aspect of can this company handle the uh, a transaction of our size? Uh, two, there is the, um, the loyalty question of who is this person really answering to? And if I'm a company, I want to make sure that my broker is answering to me and me alone and doesn't have loyalties on the other side of the table. Um, so I, I think it's really important, one, that you do hire a broker because you're not necessarily qualified to do this job yourself. And two, I think hiring a tenant-specific broker is always going to be in a company's best interest because we're just avoiding this inherent conflict of interest. And you don't have to worry about whether your broker has these other loyalties. Does, does that make sense? Yeah, and the way you reframe that was really clean. Um, it, thinking about, like, let's say... I'm going to try to press this one step further. And I think that there's a lot in what you said that allows for differentiation. If you start with the universe of options of brokerage and then you decide, you know, I don't want to work with somebody who also represent landlords, then you eliminate a big chunk of people. And then if you say it would be really nice if the firm that I worked with had their own in-house legal um, with the experience necessary to help me with this, you get a, a much smaller pool where you start to like whittle things down. Let's say you end up in, you know, an interview opportunity where the, the tenant is going to look at three people with somewhat similar skill sets. So you have, you know, in-house legal tenant only reps. Um, and I know that I'm sort of stripping away what you said of, of being able to differentiate, but what else goes into or should go into the decision criteria when somebody gets to like a short list if they're dealing with, with two brokers? Is there anything else that they should consider? Great question. Um, I think the best way to answer that is to sort of back up and think about what is the purpose of the office that you're building, right? So the purpose of an office is to, one, you, your people need a place to work, right? Two, you want your people to be happy there. You want them to want to come to work, right? So Companies try all kinds of gimmicks to try to get people to stay in the office. I, I spent uh, two years working at Square. Um, after, so Square owned Caviar, which is a big food delivery company. They acquired my company about three years ago. So I worked for them for a few years. And I went out to see their office in San Francisco. And they do like, if you're in the office before nine o'clock, breakfast is free. If you're in the office after, nine, after five o'clock at night, dinner is free. And these are all these like gimmicks that are just designed to keep people in the office and happy and working and retain employees, maybe most importantly, right? 
So when an employee leaves, you have to backfill that employee, you have to train that backfill, right? There's a lot of cost that goes into when companies churn. So what I always go back to for these companies is, what are you hoping to get out of your office space? And usually we get answers like, oh, we want a comfortable place for people to work. And the truth is you want people to be, you want, you want to provide an environment where your employees are happy to come into every day, right? Now, not every person is going to be happy coming into the office every day. I mean, things go on in people's lives, but you want to do everything that you can in your office to make it as conducive as possible to one, high quality work, consistent work, and also employee retention. So when I go into a pitch, I play up the fact that I ran a business for eight years. I sold a business to a publicly traded company. I, we had over 200 drivers on staff by the time our company was acquired. So we had about seven full-time people and about 200 independent contractor drivers. And part of our office was creating a little bit of a community where those people could come together and really feel like they belong. And when we announced that we were selling the company, people were really upset about it. And we felt awful about it because we had truly built this community where a lot of people who were kind of like isolated in their day-to-day job could come together and all be together. And that's a lesson that I've sort of taken into my commercial real estate brokerage, which is we're not just building an office. We're trying to build, it sounds a little sappy, but like it's almost like a small community for your employees that they're happy, they stay, and they perform highly. And I don't think there are that many brokers out there who have that kind of experience where they can say, listen, I've built a community like this for my employees before. We can do it again with you. And then we can pass on some of these things that are important for you, which in the end does equal dollars, right? When people leave and take other jobs where they maybe have a nicer office set up or have a better community for their employees, that costs your company money. And it's worth investing and keeping your employees happy so they stay and they perform highly. And I just, I don't think that's a pitch that very many uh, real estate brokers can make. Agree, man. I love that. What do you think that, what do people get wrong the first time they do it? Um, a, a big thing, one of the big things that we tackle with our clients is, is how long can we really commit to this space for, right? Um, and, and that can go both ways. Uh, if, if you sign too short of a lease, then you're going to be back out in the market in two years. And if it's going to feel like every 18 months, we're going and touring buildings to try to find a new office space. Now, on the other hand, if you sign too long of a lease and you don't plan for adequate growth, then you can find yourself in trouble where you have three to five years left on your lease and you don't have enough room for all of your employees because your company has grown. So a lot of times what we try to do is really sit down with our clients and do some planning for the next three to five years. Give us the optimistic outlook give us the pessimistic outlook and then give us what you think the most likely option in between is for each of these three, five and seven year projections. And then we try to use those numbers to pick a size of office that is not too big, but then they can grow into within their parameters, but also won't lock them into something that's for too long. And I think a lot of people are kind of thinking about what is good for my company today and not thinking enough about what's going to be good for my company three to five years out from now. And they don't work in enough flexibility into their deal so that they can either grow into the space or contract if they have to. And they get kind of like either overly optimistic or overly pessimistic. And we try to help them sort of walk this middle road. But um, the whole idea of like, how long am I going to lock my company into this space for is something that every company tackles or has to deal with. And very few companies are truly prepared to have that. It's kind of funny because it's almost like talking to an estate planner where it's like, look, we need to have some existential conversations, right? Like your estate planner sits down and makes your will. You kind of have to have a candid conversation. Like, look, there's going to be a day where you're not going to be here. 
and we need to plan for that. And similar thing, not, not to equate to death for a company, for an office lease, but there are some things where you need to think about what the future looks like, both on the rosy side, on the not so rosy side, and that we need to use those parameters to plan accordingly. And I just don't think that's a conversation many companies want to have internally without a little bit of prodding from you know, somebody on the outside. I think that's great. What do you think, I guess, if we look at maybe startups, what do you see or what do you think is, I guess these are two separate questions. How do you see people on their like occupying of space journey as far as, um, you know, if the first step in that process is I have an idea, I set up an LLC and for the first three months, I am sitting at my kitchen table, building a website and trying to get rolling. Maybe, maybe it would be helpful to do it for Philly, but like, what do you see that those companies typically do over the course of like the first five years if they stay in business that way? So um, co-working has become, as, as everyone knows, and I'm sure anyone who listens to this has heard of WeWork at this point. Um, I'm oh, sitting at one right now. <laughs> so well, look, <laughs> yeah. WeWork has gotten a bad rap over the last couple of months and rightfully so because of some things that they, you know, corporate governance issues that they had and the way they were running their business model. But, and I think it's sort of soured people on the entire idea of co-working where the reality is, is there's a lot of co-working companies out there and a lot of them are profitable and a lot of them do do a really nice job of providing that kind of like flexibility for the first three or five years. If co-working had existed when I started my company, there's a very good chance we would have gone into one because we didn't know what the next three to five years were going to look like. We had no we were entering into a new industry. We had no idea how to plan for growth because we didn't know if it's going to catch on like wildfire or if nobody cared about food delivery online. Right. It wasn't entire, the jury really wasn't out yet. So what we do these days is a lot of people don't realize you can use a broker to go into co-working spaces. Um, I think I read the other day that we are now over a million square feet of co-working in Philadelphia, and that's spread across like eight to 10 companies, probably more that I haven't even heard of. And part of what we do for these very early stage companies is tell us what your needs are and let us match you up with the two or three co-working spaces of the 50 that are out there that we think actually match your needs. For instance, if you are an attorney, you don't want to go to WeWork, right? You don't want an office with glass walls. You want to have some privacy and some discretion. So if you are an attorney and you're touring three WeWorks, well, you just wasted an hour of your time that you can bill $300 at or whatever you're billing at, right? So a lot of times we, they don't realize they can use a broker, but if they just had a five minute conversation with me, I can say, I've been in every co-working space in Philadelphia. Here's the three to four that you should go check out. I'll come by with you. Oh, and by the way, I've already negotiated a bunch of deals with this place. I kind of know what their bottom line is, right? So um, we can really help with that. But the co-working has kind of filled that void where we don't know exactly how much space we need. So we'll do a lot of putting people into co-working and then 18 months later, bring them back out of co-working when they've kind of outgrown the space. Got it. That makes good sense. Um, what about in Philly? Like, is there... Um it feels like Boston has maybe it's cyclical, but like the sublease market of, you know, the next step in that journey. It's like, if I do two years at WeWork and I do anything that gets some traction and I eventually need space, do you think that that, I guess, does that exist in Philly, that sublease market? And is that a decent next step before I go and sign a five year, you know, direct lease with a landlord? Um, the sublease market in Philadelphia is really tight right now. There aren't a ton of options out there. Um, 
one of the issues with a sublease is it's just inevitably going to be shoving a square peg through a round hole, right? Um, usually when you're going to one of these subleases, not a lot of money is being put into it. Um, the furniture may be included, which may or may not be what you want. Um, there is a, actually, you know all about that on the furniture side of things, but um, th there's just a sublease can be a good option, but they tend to not have the flexibility that co-working has where if you sign yourself into a three-year sublease, same thing, your company grows, you're in some trouble, whereas co-working will just move you into a bigger office and eventually you just leave because you haven't locked yourself into any kind of significant period of time. But um, I, I do agree that a sublease can be a great option. They are just hard to come by, ones that will really work well. Yeah, that's that's an interesting consideration. Like you are, the flexibility thing I hadn't really considered. Obviously, the wrong furniture thing is is in there as well and it's sort of like here's a space if it just happens to thread the needle for how you want to use the space and the stuff that's here is acceptable for you guys to use great but that's probably a low percentage of, of and folks. acceptable is exactly the right word because it's not going to it's very unlikely that it will be better than acceptable yeah it's not going to match like what i have in my head for our first office it's sort of like i have to go in and wrap my head around being okay with right. what's here. Absolutely. And it, the idea that somebody else's aesthetic or idea of what these finishes should be that matches yours exactly is almost zero, but you're stuck with it. Um, just to circle back on like what we glossed over, I think this could be a good way to wrap up because I think we've got a lot of good stuff here. We're at about 37 minutes. Um, Tell me about what it was like to be acquired by a publicly traded company as an entrepreneur. Um, in a word, it was wild. <laughs> um, so it, it was a process, right? Like we, we, our company grew, we were in one market. We kind of dominated that market. It's the main line outside of Philadelphia. It's a suburb just West of Philadelphia. Um, not long, probably like 12 mile long stretch of road, but it's a, it's a really desirable market. And as we were growing in this one market, the industry was coming up around us. So DoorDash, um, who was funded by SoftBank, same investors that were in WeWork, um, was given a, a huge, enormous amount of money. Um, so DoorDash was coming up, Uber Eats, everybody knows about Uber Eats. They were coming up, they were becoming very popular. And then it was very interesting actually, because DoorDash and Uber Eats are wildly unprofitable. Um, they lose a ton of money every quarter. And what they started doing with Grubhub was, if, if you look at Grubhub's stock over the last six months or so, um, they have really been hurt because they've had to cut their costs across the board to attempt to compete with Uber Eats and DoorDash, neither of whom make a profit. So we sort of found ourselves in like a, we had a little bit of room because we weren't in a major city. So if we were in a major city, we would have become a target for these companies immediately. But there did become a time, this was in like 2015, 2016, where a lot of these companies, all the major cities were saturated with delivery companies and they started turning their gaze to kind of what I'll call like these first class suburbs, which are right outside of these cities. And for two guys sitting in an office in Ardmore, Pennsylvania, and having DoorDash, Grubhub and Uber Eats about to come crashing down on you, it was a terrifying place to be sitting. Um, Square at the time owned this company, Caviar. Uh, Caviar is now owned by DoorDash. Square has since sold them, but they were very interested in taking over our territory. Um, so they approached us about taking over our, you know, our business and, and our market. And it was, it was a hard decision for all the reasons that I mentioned before, because I felt like we had built such a special community 
and we really were providing uh, a place for people who were sort of, uh, they, were, they were happy with what they were doing and they were happy with the setup that we had provided them. But we knew that it was only a matter of time before these companies who could essentially afford to cut their costs or you know their cost to customers to zero if they really wanted to drive us out of business, they could do that if they really wanted to. So we were feeling really vulnerable. Um, when Caviar came along, owned by Square, they kind of had their sights set on the market and they were really fair about it. It was a three or four month process of a lot of stress. We had to discuss, you know, how do you turn over information to a direct competitor that if this doesn't work out, they can, even if they say they won't turn around and crush you with it. Um, so there were, it was a kind of what I would call a delicate negotiation, but it just became clear to us at one at a point where there really just wasn't room in that market for one of these very small companies as these huge companies were growing around us. So um, we were really fortunate. I love Square. I worked for them for two years. I had an amazing experience. I, I have, I think, amazing things about the company. Um, they no longer own Caviar, but uh, I don't blame them for that either. I mean, it's a, if you look at the companies that are really succeeding in doing what we were doing, they're all, they're all losing money. And it's, it's, you don't want to be in a place where you're competing with companies who are purposely losing money to drive you out of business. So I feel lucky to have had the opportunity to exit when we did. Um, I, I do think that we'd still be scrambling and scraping by, but it would be difficult. And I think we'd be seeing our market share erode, not gain in this market. So, um, I mean, it was the experience of a lifetime and I, I feel fortunate to be in a position to have it happen when it did. It's such a cool story. And I think it, I think that you are correct that if you get an opportunity to pitch somebody to represent as they go to try to open an office, you have such a unique path that I think will really resonate with the right people. Like it, obviously it's not going to, it won't resonate with everybody, but there's certain things that what you've been through will really connect with people. So I think, um, I think we should land the plane here. I think this was, uh, a good, good first pass. And, um, thanks, man. I really yeah, enjoyed thank it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was a great talking with you. All right, Dan. All talk right, to you soon, day. man.